This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 61. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I caught up with Mike Schellinger. Mike is a full-time microcap investor as well as co-owner of Microcap Club. While my guests sometimes discuss a stock to support their investing thesis, we've yet to provide case studies about investing successes. And I thought Mike would be the perfect person to talk about different case studies as he not only has the experience, but in past episodes, he has noted about the importance of keeping track of companies that you've researched and not just the companies you end up taking positions in. The goal for this episode is to drive home the importance of not only analyzing your failures, but understanding what led to your greatest successes and why keeping careful notes is very, very helpful. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 61 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Mike Schellinger, but first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2018 Investor Conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual microcap investor conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known public and private microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 24 to 26, 2018 at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Mike Schellinger on the program. He is a full-time microcap investor and co-owner of Microcap Club. Mike, welcome back to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Hi, Bobby. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So uh, for those who may have missed uh, one of our previous interviews, uh, what what is your background? So I've been a full-time investor in microcaps for over 11 years. Uh, My my original background is I have a degree in computer engineering and my corporate career was primarily in managing software development for cell phones. 
I started on investing in the early 90s, co-tailing my dad's investments in the small banks, um, which were microcaps for the most part. And then in the late 90s, I decided I wanted to start investing on my own. So given my technology background, I kind of knew what was going on. This was 1999 and, you know, and uh, we were partying like it was 1999. And, and I knew that uh, technology was um, a little bit lofty. So I decided to focus on low PE stocks. Uh, and it turned out that most of these uh, are microcaps, just because that's a lot of times what happens um, uh, with microcaps. Um, and uh, so I just kind of fell into microcaps, you know, pretty much by accident. Um, so the first couple of years were a bit challenging due to the crash in 2000, but I did okay. And then in 2003, I started doing really well and. 2004, 2005, 2006 were really good too. Um, so I kind of reached a point that my my hobby, which I started in the late 90s, was much more than just a little hobby. It was getting pretty big, and, and uh, I couldn't really do my full time job and be a microcap uh, investor the way I was, um, and continue to do both successfully. So I decided I had to pick one, and I went with my passion, which is uh, microcap investing. And that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. And also during that time, I uh, um, met uh, uh, Ian Castle, and um, uh, he's the founder of Microcap Club. And uh, I'm now one of the uh, owners of Microcap Club and, and run it along with Ian. So, Mike, also for those who don't know, you know, what, what is Microcap Club? Microcap Club is a social media website that focuses on investment in microcap stocks. Our number one priority is finding great companies early. We have discussions by our 180 members on over 500 microcap companies, primarily in the U.S. and Canada. Also, we have significant educational content on the website that is free in addition to our forums on those over 500 companies. To access the forums, there are two ways to join. First, you can become a member by writing up a thesis on your favorite microcap idea. That idea is voted on by the members of Microcap Club, and if it obtains sufficient yes votes, you become a member with posting privileges. We also have a paid subscription way to join that doesn't require an application and also provides read-only access to the forums. Okay, Mike, so for today's podcast, uh, you'll be doing some case studies on a common characteristic of multi-bagger stocks. But to start, can you set the stage for some of these studies? Sure. So the, the case studies have a theme to them, and, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, near the time I started preparing for this interview, I was listening to the recording of a great presentation done by Morgan Housel for a 2017 Microcap Leadership Summit. This presentation is entitled, What Other Industries Teach Us About Investing. I highly recommend listening to this presentation as Morgan has a gift for boiling things down to their simplest level. You can find it on microcapclub.com under the education tab. In this presentation, Morgan talks about talks much about behavior and risk perception. When I was listening to Morgan's presentation, I was reflecting on the biggest successes that I've had and was looking for some common themes or a common theme. And I was looking at companies, uh, for the most part, that have been multi-baggers. 
Now, most of my big winners have had the essential ingredients that I outline in my article entitled My Secret Recipe, the Index Card, which you can also find on Microcap Club. These essential ingredients are profitability, sustainable growth, and compelling valuations. What I really want to focus on is the compelling valuation part. It is easy to find profitable companies with sustainable growth, but often they trade at a high valuation as investors are aware of the growth and have it priced in. It's much more difficult to find a company such as this um, that has that um, profitability and high growth, um, but is at a compelling valuation. So I'm not going to go into P ratios and quantitative analysis on pricing for these companies. Um, rather, I'm going to talk about why these companies had compelling valuations, because I think it provides an important insight into what often enables a multibagger. Another way of thinking of it is I'm going to explore why someone might be willing to sell you a stock for a low price before a large run-up in the stock price. Why might you be right and they are wrong? Wait, so we're not going to get into P ratios and quantitative analysis in this? What no, kind of... I want to keep everybody awake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to uh, so to so follow up on on your answer right there, you know, um, can you describe in more detail uh, Morgan Housel's presentation that you were referring to? And by the way, I'll provide a link to that in the description uh, for this okay. podcast. In in Morgan's pre presentation, he starts out talking about two people. I think this is a really interesting story. So the first person is a woman named Grace Groner that had a hard life and lived to 100 years. She was orphaned, worked as a secretary, was never married, and had no kids. When she died, she had $7 million that she donated to Lake Forest College. Everyone that knew her was shocked as they had no idea of the fortune she had made through simple buy-and-hold investing. The second investor was someone that was born in a wealthy family, got his MBA at Harvard, worked on Wall Street, worked his way up, and became vice chairman of one of the largest investment banks. He was one of the most influential people in global finance. Now, ironically, the day after Grace Groner died, the second investor filed for personal bankruptcy. He said the financial crisis had wiped him out. So what I really like about this story is Morgan's um, summary of the lesson between the two individuals. And what he said is, investing is not necessarily about what you know, but about how you behave, and behavior is difficult to teach. I'm going to read that again a second time. Investing is not necessarily about what you know, but about how you behave, and behavior is difficult to teach. Now, there's a lot more in Morgan's presentation that I could cite regarding investor behavior and perception of risk, but I think it is best to just listen to that presentation for yourself. Absolutely. And, and as I said, I'm going to provide that link uh, in, in the description of this interview. And so, you know, Mike, going back to your analysis on your greatest successes, what stood out the most to you? What struck me about many of the greatest successes is that there was often a reason that the stock had a compelling valuation. That is, the company was misunderstood due to other perception, other investors' perception and behavior. I'm reminded of a quote from a famous investor and strategist, Don Cox. He said, The most exciting returns are to be had from an asset class 
where those who know it the best love it the least because they have been burnt the worst. Again, the most exciting returns are to be had from an asset class where those who know it the best love it the least because they have been burnt the worst. Now, Don meant that statement to apply to a class of assets like oil and natural gas, but I think you can apply it to individual companies too. A great business change at a company where investors have been burned before or perhaps just dislike the company can be a great setup for a big move. That is because people are willing to sell it at a low price despite the fact that a great change in the business is in progress. The sellers have allowed their emotions of the past results and their experiences to color their analysis of the company's situation going forward. The key to all this is you have to be able to identify where there is a change and know when the selling investors have it wrong. So my case studies are going to cover a few places where I've found the selling investors to be wrong, but I'm sure there are many more reasons, um, but I'm going to just give you a summary of of what I'm going to talk about. So first of all, um, there's a case study on incorrect assessment of executive compensation, and thus the investors didn't trust management. I'm going to give two examples where the prior failings of the company basically had no bearing on the future, but the investors sort of anchored to the, the, the existing investors anchored to the prior failings. And then the last category is a company where the investors were kind of assuming the company was a one hit wonder and it became a lot more than that. So when you look at these areas, um, really what you can boil it down to is that the existing shareholders sold at a very low price because they incorrectly assess the risk, often due to their past experiences and biases. Again, it comes down to behavior. And, you know, as Morgan talked about, that behavior is hard to learn, hard to teach. So stocks become available at compelling valuations due to incorrect behavior of other investors, and often it is due to an emotional reaction by investors. Okay, Mike, we're all set and ready to go for the first case study. Fire away. Okay, for this first case study, it's the only company I'm going to name because it's no longer a publicly held company. Uh, This is a story from uh, almost 10 years ago now. The name of the company was American Surgical Holdings, and the symbol was ASRG. What American Surgical Holdings did is they provided uh, surgical assistance services for surgeries. They were a rapidly growing company. Insiders owned over half of the company, half of the shares, that is, and they were paying two executives uh, 500K per year each plus bonuses, which seemed quite generous for a company with annual revenues around 16 million, and this was in the middle of uh, 2009. Uh, Investors didn't trust the company because of the high salaries relative to the company's revenue. However, what investors didn't take into consideration was the fact that these executives had medical degrees, um, and also they were quite uh, experienced um, in the area that this company worked, and they had management skills. You know, so they were worth um, this, you know, that kind of money, and, and, you know, even if they were just working in um, their medical areas, they would have made a lot of money. So my thinking was that the executive compensation really wasn't to sign a greed, 
on the part of management. It was just what their skills were worth. So anyway, I invested in this company in a small way and then was in and out of the stock a bit. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of the history, um, but just I'm going to hit on some high points and you know, possibly I'll get a few wrong because uh, it's a long time ago, but um, I think you'll get the main point. So a bit of time went by after I initially invested, and, and actually I was even out of the stock at this point, but I continued to follow the company. And uh, this was the end of July of 2010, actually July 30th, and they announced an uh, eight cent per share dividend. Uh, the stock price at the time was $1.01, so that was a pretty significant dividend. And it was a sign that um, management was going to start rewarding investors uh, uh, by, by paying the dividend. So that, that was pretty interesting. Um, then the next thing that happened is uh, the company filed their third quarter report, and they indicated that the senior management team had reached their bonus targets but it opted not to receive their bonuses. So that was really interesting. So now you have a management team that, you know, is not only rewarding shareholders, but they're holding back their bonus. And so sometime around this time, I started building a new position because I knew that this change would help investor perception of the company. Um, But, you know, I didn't really build a big position. And investors were still skeptical. So then another really interesting thing happened, and this was um, December 2nd, 2010. Uh, So not too much longer after that, they announced a second dividend. And this time it was 16 cents per share instead of the 8 cents per share. Um, So now we're at a total of 24 cents per share in dividends in a very short period of time. And I immediately realized that the second dividend would change the investor perception of the company because now it was a trend. And also, managements, because they had stopped receiving their bonus, they obviously realized that paying a dividend to everyone would raise the stock price and improve their net worth more than collecting a bonus. And remember, management had high inter- insider ownership. They owned over half the company. So when this news release came out, and it came out in the middle of the day, um, I actually it was in an 8K, um, I can still like vividly remember this. Um, I instantly added significantly to my position when I read um, the news. And the stock was around a dollar at this time, and it closed the day at a dollar fifteen. So it had a decent reaction, but not a huge reaction. So then, you know, a couple more weeks went by, and another news result came out. But before the news result came out, it was a dollar thirty-two cents a share. So remember, this is a company that's paid 24 cents in dividends and was trading at $1.32 a share, which is an incredible yield. And so the announcement was that they were being acquired for $2.87 per share. And I think when I read the news, I nearly fell out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> now, being in the stock for a buyout was lucky, and it's almost never my thesis. Uh, however, I think if management had continued paying a dividend, the stock price would have quickly adjusted for that dividend flow, and it still would have made a huge move. Um, so, you know, while it was lucky to be uh, in that buyout, I really think that that just hastened what probably was going to happen ultimately. And this is really a case of um, 
you know, investors' perception kind of being wrong and being there to take advantage of a situation when you realize that investor perception is wrong and, uh, um, you know, thus make a big return. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a, wow, only in a few weeks. I mean, geez. So, um, so in, in the next two case studies, you, you then look at situations where management was really crucial to the overall success. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Um, so I like to meet the management of companies I own or am interested in owning. I may do this over the phone in a quarterly conference call or at an investor conference. And I do this from as many companies as I can, but not all that I own. Uh, and when I meet with these companies, I'm mainly trying to learn two things. I mean, there's more beyond that, but I would say mainly two. The first is I want to understand the personality, personality of management. And you can learn a lot about people just by the way they answer questions. And it can be just simple questions about their business or, you know, um, you don't have to be asking them, you know, complex stuff. And things you can learn, for example, is are they conservative or are they very aggressive? Do they seem trustworthy or do they seem shady? You know, is, is the management team like really, really, really trying to sell you the stock and saying you got to buy in today or they're just telling you the facts and, you know, and, uh, you know, just being conservative. The other thing sometimes I've seen is, you know, is this an executive that really knows the company like the back of their hand? Or sometimes I've seen situations where they barely seem to remember what they put out in their last press release. So so you can just learn a lot about the personality of management just by having a, a quick conversation with them. The second thing I really try to do in these meetings is to fill in any holes that I have in understanding of the business model. So in the next two examples, and actually in the in the first ex, uh, the first case study, I think it was my understanding of the personality of management that gave me the confidence to invest in these companies. With microcaps, a lot of their destiny is determined by the skill of the management team. You need someone that's trustworthy and capable. And sometimes without meeting the team, especially the CEO, it's difficult to assess. And also, once you meet management, it gives you a different perspective on future company statements, which may lead you to a different conclusion than other investors. You know, so sometimes I've, I've seen where, you know, there's investors that, you know, they just, they read the press releases and they read the SEC filings and they're looking purely at the numbers. But companies are run by people and, you know, people make good decisions and they make bad decisions. And when you really get to understand management and how they work, it gives you a different lens through which you can look at, um, you know, at how they make their decisions and and how they operate and what to expect going forward, um, you know, based on their personality. Mm-hmm. But Mike, real quick, I, I just wanted to stop you right there because, uh, you know, it, I, I know with it, you know, it, it's you really want to talk with management and and, and get their, you know, their. Uh, 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 just a feeling from for who they are and, and understand their personality. But, um, you know, in terms of like going back to the first case study, you know, what made you though actually just stop and, and you know, not just ignore it as like, uh, that's high executive uh, compensation, whatnot, you know. So what actually made you want to look a little bit further and actually get to the point where you wanted to speak with management? Well, 
Um, I guess part of that, you know, I, <laughs> this is going back a long way, so I don't know all the, the I don't remember all the details of that, but um, I remember that I made a phone call to management to just ask a couple of simple questions. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that, um, um, and actually it was about some surgeries, some types of surgeries that I wanted to make sure they didn't do for ethical reasons. And when I asked the question, they were like, gosh, we would never do that. And, and that just gave me a whole different, um, insight into them. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's sort of, it it was, you know, not only the answer, but it was the way that the the question was answered. It was like, oh, we would never, you know, we would never think to do that. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you talk with people and their answers are kind of robotic or, you know, or you're not really sure if they mean what they say. But this time I was clear that that I knew that they meant what they said. And I knew that they had some ethics. And, you know, it was hard for me to see somebody that was just being greedy and in it for themselves um, when they passionately answered my other question. Mm -hmm. So I think another interesting takeaway then from the case study, the first case study, is that, you know, while a company may have most if not all of your things that you look for when you're doing your initial exploration phase for finding a microcap you know it's it's also important to, to keep in mind that that critical thinking hat right it, and yes right and just asking and just not being afraid to ask that extra extra question because it could uncover something that you may not have found when you're doing you know your your more quantitative due diligence would you agree yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And I think, you know, there's times that, uh, you know, there's things that that maybe don't make sense to you on the on the surface. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you start asking questions, um, you know, I, I know there's this an interesting story that Ian has, has told before where there was a company that he was invested in or interested in investing in and the CEO was selling stock constantly. Mm-hmm. And, um, not in large amounts, but constantly, and people were kind of disturbed by that. And so Ian asked him about this and, um, the answer was that he, the CEO had a father that was of modest means or that needed money or whatever. And he decided that the right thing to do to honor his father was to sell stock periodically and give that money to his father. Mm. Um, so, you know, so sometimes what things appear like they are on the surface is totally different than what they really are. And, and, you know, sometimes just asking questions, you know, whether they're directly about the issue or indirectly about the issue just gives you a whole different insight than, than, you know, what what you saw on the cover of that book. So Mike, let's get back, getting back to the, the two case studies. And uh, just to to remind everybody, these are going to be covering prior failings of the company that have no bearing on the future. So Mike, floor is yours. Okay. So uh, the next case study, this is a company that's a manufacturer of large precision machine metal components and systems. It was a turnaround situation. I've been following this company for years. And the previous management had tried to grow the company in some poor ways and turned a profitable company into an unprofitable company. So a new CEO was brought in who turned around the company. He cut expenses, grew margins, 
and significantly grew revenue, and soon the company was profitable. And this guy is really, really conservative. <laughs> like, uh, in his company conference calls, he would not tell you much at all about um, anything future-related in the company. He, he, he didn't want to say anything that was even remotely forward-looking, um, and he was really conservative. So you, you knew with a guy like that that you know he wasn't trying to <laughs> he wasn't trying to uh, give you a song and dance. I mean he he was just just the facts, ma'am, and that was it. Um, so investors had been burned by this company obviously before because of the crash. So while the stock moved up uh, after the company hit profitability, it was still um, cheap when one estimated future earnings based on their growing backlog, um, and. You know, the investors just probably wanted out because they had been burned before. And sometimes investors just irrationally sell just because they want to be done with the stock and not due to rational evaluation of future prospects. I mean, sometimes you hear investors saying, hey, I just want to, you know, I'm now back to break even, so I'm just going to sell. I didn't lose any money. Hooray. And, and they're not really thinking objectively um, about the future of the company and what could really play out. So in the end, unfortunately, those that sell, sold um, um, you know, missed a big move because the stock moved 600% from the point where they announced profitability to the peak price less than two years later. So it was a huge move, short period of time. And you know, it was relatively easy to see. I mean, maybe you didn't know that it was going to move 600%. I know I certainly didn't know, but I knew that the setup was right and that that people were just sell, you know, throwing out the stock for the wrong reason, and uh, it was an opportunity. So anyway, that's the second case study. The third case study is also a company I'm not going to name, because I currently own the stock, and uh, so I'm just going to describe it in generalities. And it's not about talking my book; it's more about learning about, um, you know, a past experience. So. The company had a, a solid, successful growing business, but tried to expand into a related business via an acquisition in a hot area. Well, the acquisition turned out to be a bad idea and had to be disposed of. And investors blamed management for the poor acquisition, and then they really started questioning everything management did. They were just ruthless. And, and investors dumped the stock. However... Um, the business that existed before the exact acquisition continued to grow. It was a solid business. It was a solid business all the way through the acquisition before and after. Um, it was just, you know, a big decision to make an acquisition was bad. And, um, you know, when that was over, people wanted to exit. Uh, and I believe what kept the price low and ultimately drove the price higher was a change in the investor base because you had all these disgruntled shareholders that just wanted to sell, and then obviously you had, you know, somebody has to take their place, so a new shareholder is purchasing. Uh, I think that many of the new investors saw it as an opportunity to buy a growing business at a cheap price where the results of the original business were masked by the results of a bad acquisition. So really what you can say is, you know, the new investors were willing to forgive management's past mistakes, whereas the old investors were not. And it's an example of two different sets of psychology for the same company. And the end result is that the stock more than doubled from the low. So again, it's just a case you've got to look sort of um, 
you've got to take the facts and understand management well and really try to be objective and not be emotional about um, what has happened with the company. Uh, and, and it's that emotion that often causes, you know, an irrational stock price. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, in, in the last case study, you know, while management was important, as demonstrated in the previous three case studies, you know, in, in this one, you know, what stood out to you here? So this is a case study about a company that went from a one product company to a multiple product company. And often you see companies that are one hit wonders and never grow beyond that. And I think it's quite common in microcaps because they're small companies and often, you know, a company's built off of a, a great single product and, and they have a hard time transitioning to, to multiple products. But that's not the case all the time. And for this particular company, I saw the transition from a one product company to a multiple product company, I think earlier than many others did. Not all, but many. And what I think it was, is it was the company's near flawless execution on the first product, in addition to my perception of management, that led me to believe they could actually transition into a multiple product company and the stock would respond accordingly. So maybe we'll delve further into the case study now. So this is another stock that I currently own, so I'm not going to name the company. And as I mentioned, this company had one product that was growing rapidly. Uh, I think many investors looked at the company and said, well, it's a one-product company, and the growth that they had on this one product you know, would, be, would be all that you would see. So stock price did move up in response to the growth of the one product, but that was a small part of the stock price move and the growth. So after the company performed for the first product, they started announcing several new products that were unrelated to the first product. And it was around this time I got to know the management team. And I really got to understand that this management team was a top-rate management team. So I kind of knew that soon investor skepticism on them being a one-product company would diminish as people would start to price in the success of the other products. So to make a long story short, the company went on to be more than a 20-bagger in under three years. With the starting point of that move was around the time it became evident that they were more than a one-product company. Now, initially, I thought that this company might be a one-hit wonder, too. But when I saw them introduce new products, and I knew the execution of the first product, it was flawless. And I got to know management. I figured the stock would start pricing in the growth for more more than one product. Although, to be honest, I had no idea what kind of uh, growth that would, would get priced in. Um, and the stock was not only a case of increasing earnings, but it was also a case of expanding PE multiples. So in that short period of time of under three years, the stock price increased 20 times, but the earnings only grew by approximately six times. Now I say only six times, and you know I would dream uh, <laughs> of having lots of companies that grew earnings six times in that short a period of time. But, you know, the amazing thing is that the stock price actually grew 20 times, whereas the earnings only grew six. Uh, and the multiple expansion was all because of investor perception, which often isn't evident to those that sell um, before that expansion. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, how, how would you summarize your case studies and what, what should my audience take away from this? So, in short, 
Many times stocks become available at compelling valuation, often due to incorrect behavior of other investors. And it's something to be aware of. However, I also want to add that while I think a lot of the compelling valuations of companies that go on to make big moves are created by behavior or investing psychology, that isn't why all of them are creative. So I don't want to make the you know, perception that this is the one golden piece that will answer everything. Um, you know, I know I've had a few big wins where the compelling valuation was just caused by plain obscurity. You know, sometimes nobody's ever heard of this company. They don't issue press releases. It's, you know, um, they might as well not exist. Um, you know, another reason I've seen for compelling valuation is sometimes you have a major holder in the stock that needs to liquidate their position for reasons unrelated to the company, such as, you know, maybe they're shutting down a fund and this company is held in that fund and they just need to sell it. And it doesn't really matter what the future brings. Um, so that may create an opportunity for buying the stock at a low price. You know, there are probably other reasons um, for stocks being available at compelling valuations, but I would bet that if someone did a large study, they would find that poor investor behavior and psychology is you know, probably the number one reason um, for, or at least you know, the top, one of the top ones um, for um, why stocks are available at a val compelling valuations. Another thing I want to clarify is I don't want people to have the perception of, oh, just because there's two different opinions on the stock, um, you know, that means that the pessimistic ones are wrong. Uh, they're often right. So um, I think one of the great things about social media is that it really helps to delve into why pessimists on a particular stock think the way they do. Uh, you know, when, when you sell a stock you, uh, through the market, you have no idea really who's on the other end that's buying or when you're buying who's on the other end that's selling but with social media you get uh, people telling you what they're doing and so you get to you can kind of sometimes get um some insight into you know what the thinking is on a particular company and then what you have to do is you have to think independently and understand how much of the pessimist's opinion is rooted in fact and lightly out likely outcome and how much of that is just based on bias that may be related to being burned by the company before or having a similar experience that, that burned them that really may have no relevance to the current company. So when you find these growing companies where you're quite confident that the pessimists are wrong, or at least that people aren't seeing the reason for the growth, you can often have an outsized return because you can buy them cheaply. Thanks, Mike. So, so switching gears slightly here, and uh, but this is something that we always do in our yearly interviews. And uh, what are some themes to watch in microcap investing this year? Well, I'm getting out my crystal ball now, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm not going to talk so much about the future. I'm going to talk about two particular themes um, that I think are already pretty well known. Um, in fact, I think for both of these, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know about them, at least as an investor. Um, but maybe there's, there's some aspects of this that you haven't thought about or haven't noticed. So first thing is taxes. So I'm sure you've heard the U.S. federal uh, corporate tax rate has been reduced from 35% down to 21%. So that new corporate tax rate is going to boost earnings for some profitable companies this year, 
if they've been accruing taxes and, and should result in an increasing stock price just because of that tax benefit. Uh, I will say in the microcap space is that I know there's quite a few companies that I watch, and it's probably not all the companies, but many of them, where this, this um, you know, lower tax rate has not been factored in the stock price. So I think what we're going to see is that when the reality of higher earnings are reported, when they report their financial results, we'll see some of these stocks go up. Also, um, many of the listeners may not be aware of what's going on with Q4 results. Uh, And I'm going to keep this pretty high level, but um, because of the tax change, and tax assets and liabilities that companies may have on their balance sheets, there's one-time charges or one-time benefits that many companies are starting to report in their Q4 results. And this is going to surprise some investors, so it's something to be aware of. But what it's also going to do is it's going to make, if people aren't careful and look closely at the income statement, it's going to make you know poor results potentially look better or better results look worse or, you know, or other things like that. So you really need to look at the income tax line um, on company reports um, for the near term because it's going to be moving around a lot and it's, and it's going to really going to impact what results look like. You just look at the bottom line, um, it's going to be pretty misleading for a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. So and that's – that. yeah. No, no, sorry. I Continue. That's, that's theme number one, and theme number two is interest rates. Uh, you know, if you turn on CNBC, I'm sure you've heard ad nauseum about interest rates uh, over the past several weeks. Um, and, you know, obviously that's been swinging the market around. Um, but what you maybe haven't thought about is how these higher rates are potentially going to impact your investments. So... Mainly, this is an issue for companies that have uh, a lot of debt, and they may have a variable interest rate, and they'll have to start paying more interest. So it's going to impact their income going forward. Um, Also, if you have a company that has maybe some fixed rate debt that they have to refinance, they're going to get a higher rate now, most likely. Um, so there could be some significant impacts, uh, especially if, you know, the, the interest rate moves, um, get a lot larger, uh, um, you know, as, as the year moves on. So it's something to keep your eye on, um, uh, because, you know, it's, it's more than just, uh, how your, uh, uh, how refinancing might look to you in, a, in, uh, uh, you know, your mortgage or what have you, it, it's going to have some real impacts to companies. So would it be kind of a, I guess, maybe a special situation if you looked at companies that, you know, may be perfect candidates for debt uh, refinancing or maybe uh, converting some of that debt into common or, or preferred? I mean, would, would that be something to look for maybe? Um, I think so. I don't know. I think largely it's going to be, uh, you know, since interest rates are going up, it's probably not going to be a, uh, a positive thing. It's going to be more right. negative things for companies. So I would say probably for most investors, it's, you know, it's time to look at the companies they have in their portfolio and look at how much debt they have and what the terms are on that and, and uh, 
you know, get a handle on what that might do to them. Mm-hmm. So um, another thing that uh, that you and Ian always host every year is the uh, the Microcap Leadership Summit. So uh, I wanted to uh, I know you guys have started putting out the dates and, and marketing for this. So when is the event this year, and uh, where can our listeners uh, go and register? So the event is being held on September 27th and 28th at the same location, which is in a Chicago suburb near the airport. Um, Anyone that is a Microcap Club member or subscriber can register. Uh, You can do it on the Microcap Club website. And right now we have our early bird special going on now through March 1st to register for only $197. So, Mike, where can my audience find more information about you and the Microcap Club? So Microcap Club is simply located at www.microcapclub.com. You can also find me on Twitter at MikeDDKing, in addition to posting on Microcap Club. Mike, thank you so much again for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, very soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Mike, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast, or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.